G'day, I'm Andy Saunders and this is So What, a podcast from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. If you've tuned in before, then you shared a journey that I hope you found as fascinating and informative as I have. You've also heard me make attempts at jokes, but this subject matter isn't much to make fun of. That doesn't mean I'll stop. But you've heard where power comes from and how companies are using technology to disrupt traditional energy markets, giving us all renewable energy choices. Then we went full Jetson with electric vehicles and found that EV smile. I've gone full Jetsons, yeah. (laughs) You learn how energy companies use gamification to change the customer experience. You get rewards to switch off, reduce the strain on energy grids and help prevent blackouts. A win for us, a win for the planet. Although that episode didn't end well for me when zombie Zach ate my brains. To be fair, there wasn't much to chew on. Zach is now quite malnourished. Anyway, I'm a pretty renewable kind of guy. Hopeful after it and applause. Join me now in episode four as we explore the perks of solar. To find out more, I've strapped a giant pair of wings to my back and I'm flying towards the sun. What could possibly go wrong? Look, if you're starting to do some research and thinking about a solar system, uh, there's a number of things you can think about. This is Mark Kerr, the Group Manager for Large-Scale Solar and Operations at Origin. First of all, you want to think about the quality of the system that you want to get. I view solar as a long-term investment. You put it on your roof. You don't want to have issues with it. You really want to be able to put it there and, and, and have confidence that it's going to be there for the long term. So have a good think about who you think good providers are ask around with friends, family, all of those sorts of things, do your research. But certainly I'd encourage people, go and find a good, credible provider who will be with you for the journey. Deb and I have a holiday home that the bank owns and that had solar panels when we bought it, when they bought it. The family home doesn't, but we're thinking about it. Mark is going to help explain the first steps towards going solar. Like, what's it going to cost? Yeah, so the, the, it depends. I mean, like solar systems come in all shapes and sizes. You can have the base model, you can have the the advanced model, you can have, uh, depending on how much roof space you've got, you might have a small system, a medium system, a large system. So there's not really a one-size-fits-all solution to solar. But having said that, if you take a typical residential solar system, it costs you somewhere between five to $6,000, or you can pay more if you want better features in terms of, you know, fancier electronics and all of those sorts of things. But you can get a good quality basic system for around the five to $6,000 mark. If you want, you know, a higher quality system, you might pay a 1000 or $2,000 more. That sort of system should give you savings of about $1,000 a year in terms of uh, electricity that you don't need to, to buy off the grid anymore. So that gives you payback times really around five, six years on average. Um, it depends on things like feed-in tariffs, which is if you generate more solar electricity than you use and you send it into the grid, your retailer actually gives you money for that. That's called a feed-in tariff. 
How good is being paid to feed energy back into the grid and getting a suntan at the same time? Not that I need one. Aussies love solar. More than three million homes now have it. That's about one house in three. Okay, next step. Where do I get my solar panels from? Is it the local takeaway or grocery store? They're predominantly made in China, but there's also panels which are made in various other parts of Asia. There's panels which are made out of Europe. There's panels which are made uh, out of America, so on and so forth. But clearly, solar is very much a... It's a, it's a customer-driven choice. You don't have to buy a solar system. It's a discretionary thing, so customers should choose what's most important to them. I'm Robert Spawn from Tindo Solar. I'm general manager here. Robert runs Tindo Solar. That's Tindo, not Tinder. They're based in Mawson Lake, South Australia. You might be as surprised as I was to find out that Tindo Solar are... Australia's only solar panel manufacturer. There's so much happening in the solar space. Change is fast and constant. You can expect to see other Australian solar manufacturers coming online in time. Just because we import most of our panels from overseas doesn't mean we love our solar any less, and Robert has a pretty good theory why. I like to think of it as the democratisation of power. So for so long we've been wedded to our energy retailers and having to take the power that they give us and put up with the prices they charge us and... We haven't had much of a say and Australians, we're an independent lot and we like to take control and be able to have that independence and be able to know, you know, this is my power, it's my solar, I'm generating my own electricity for my own family and that's probably the biggest driver we have in Australia is they just want to take control of their own destiny basically. Okay, a quick recap. Your initial investment of several thousand dollars hopefully pays off after a half a dozen years. You might even get paid for sending electricity back onto the grid. To choose a solar manufacturer, you can look worldwide or hit up Robert at Tindo Solar if you want to go Australian. Again, don't hit up Robert on Tinder. It's Tindo. Please remember that, guys. Um, I didn't. Next, how does a solar panel work? Yes, yeah, so a solar panel in its simplest form is silicon metal. Uh, with a few coatings and treatments and some silver and we then solder those solar cells together into strings of cells. Uh, We laminate them between glass and layers of uh, protecting film, put a frame around the outside and and that's how we end up with a a single solar module. Once we connect all those solar modules together, we end up with a nice simple solar system for either a residential or a commercial system. Those panels, they'll produce, they'll take about 20% of the incoming light turn it into electricity and typically directly power the property that they're connected to. But a lot of properties are different. Households and families vary. So surely it can't be one size fits all, like me and my brother's undies when we were young. We do a number of systems where customers know that they have a certain daytime usage and so we'll do a two or a three kilowatt system for them. They understand they're going to have their evening usages and so they'll, they'll get a smaller system just to cover their personal needs during the day. They may be a retired couple, no kids, that sort of thing. Then we have big families, big usages, and they'll go with a 10 or a 15 kilowatt system, generate the hell out of it and have plenty of option and they can add batteries down the track and then there's everything in between. Shop around for a good installer that works with you to figure out what you need to power your home. Before we go on... I want to go back to something Robert said before, 
When he mentioned that solar panels only turn about 20% of incoming light into electricity, that really surprised me. I thought it would have been more. We get about 1,000 watts per square metre of light hitting the Earth's surface every day, whereas the solar might put out 200 watts per square metre of electricity. So that difference, the the 800 watt loss or the the 20% efficiency, it's a fundamental principle of the the photovoltaics. So there's a lot of R&D pushing the cells up. The cells that we use are about 23%. We uh, held the world record for silicon cell efficiency for 30 of the last 38 years. Remember when Robert mentioned photovoltaics? Well, to explain that term, let me introduce you to the top dog, the big cheese, Il Padrino, the man many regard as the father of photovoltaics. <laughs> Sounds like some sort of selfie mafia. Yeah, so it may be modern photovoltaics, father of modern photovoltaics. Okay, the father of modern photovoltaics. We completely dominated the field and the ideas that we published, you know, author groups around the world would cotton on to them and follow in our footsteps more or less to to improve what they were doing as well. This is Martin Green from the University of New South Wales. I work at um, in a school of photovoltaic engineering that we established at the university in around the year 2000. He and his colleagues have an international reputation for improving silicon solar efficiency, optimising solar cell voltage and reducing manufacturing costs. With Martin, we fly close to the sun. He's a very big deal. With me, I have a reputation for improving hot chips with tomato sauce. I'm director of the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics that involves um, groups other Australian universities and the CSIRO. Martin's been researching solar energy conversion for over 40 years, so who better to explain Australia's long love affair with solar? Yes, there was a a French uh, scientist. A French scientist? Seriously? (laughs) Oh, wow. Edmund Becquerel. And uh, he, um, I think he was 19, he was quite young, but his father was a very well-known scientist and he was working in his lab and he just shone some light on these bits of metal that were immersed in some uh, solutions and managed to get an electrical current out of it. So that was the first sort of thought that that light could be turned into electricity, you know, via chemicals and so on. So um, that's normally um, regarded as the start of the photovoltaic era, although it wasn't until later in the uh, 19th century that People started making solar cells that looked more like the ones that we're used to today. So, we know what a solar panel looks like. And Robert from Tindo Solar told us about the components. Silicon solar cells soldered together, forming a string of cells layered between laminated panels. But when sunlight hits those solar cells, how is it converted into electricity? Please tell us. Please, Martin. Yeah, so um, it depends on modern physics. So it took the development of quantum mechanics to allow the operation of the cells to be understood. But even before that, Albert Einstein um, just had this insight that the way the light interacted with, with solid materials, you could regard the light as being made up of little packets of energy as well. So these are known as photons. That 
type of thinking then led to uh, quantum mechanics itself and the, the formulation of the equations and everything that you need to understand the material, the semiconductors that light is interacting in a solar cell. For some of you, those packets of energised sunlight, photons, are hitting your solar panels, the semiconducting photovoltaic cells, right now. Go on, go outside and take a cheeky look. Also, think about what I just said and how I said it and how it sounded like I knew what I was talking about. So the photons in sunlight hit the semiconductor and if they've got enough energy, they can excite an electron from these lower energy allowed states up to the higher energy across the band gap. The band gap is not when musicians forget to turn up for a gig. In a semiconductor, the band gap is the minimum energy required to excite an electron. I know it doesn't sound like a great night out, but if there's enough energy in the form of sunlight hitting the solar panel, the electrons are agitated and go into a free state. Once they get into these higher energy states, they can move through the semiconductor so you can carry electrical current in the semiconductor. So a solar cell, you just... um, have the semiconductor, the light falls on it, the photons with enough energy create these free electrons, and then the solar cell is designed to get them all moving off in the same direction. If you just have a piece of semiconductor sitting there, the electrons will get excited up and then just sort of relax back to their ground state eventually. But if you have a solar cell, you whisk the electrons out of the material before they have a chance to relax back to their original states. As Martin explained, photovoltaics is the conversion of light into electricity via a semiconducting material, silicon. His passion for solar began with an interest in microelectronics, which led to completing a PhD in Canada. And then, like me, flying towards the sun. 12, 11, 10, Martin found himself nine, hurtling towards space in the pursuit six, of semiconducting five, structures four, that produced three, the greatest two, solar conversion one, efficiency. Zero. We have a Yes, there was a bustling industry for for spacecraft. So that was the, you know, the first um, efficient cells were made in the 1950s as a result of all this understanding of semiconductors and things that developed then. And uh, people were quite excited about being able to make energy from the sun efficiently and everything. But they were way too, the cells were way too expensive then. So that the only uh, use that was found for them was in powering satellites where they proved ideal. Then, in 1973, oil embargoes between the US and the Middle East forced the United States to pursue other forms of energy, and Project Independence was launched. I love that movie. Will Smith is awesome. What I have called Project Independence 1980 is a series of plans and goals set to ensure that by the end of this decade, Americans will not have to rely on any source of energy beyond our own. Nixon launched uh, Project Independence, which was you know, trying to find non-fossil sources of energy, not because of the climate impact, but because um, they wouldn't be dependent on the Middle East for their energy supplies. But it wasn't until Jimmy Carter's presidency between 1977 and 81 
that funding for solar really took off. There was a big program launched that got well-funded during the Jimmy Carter era to take what we knew about solar cells for spacecraft and try and develop much cheaper cells for terrestrial use. So that sort of stimulated programs worldwide and also created a lot of activity in the industry. By then, in the mid-70s, Martin had set up a research program in solar at the University of New South Wales. Although the solar industry was bustling and energised, manufacturing this would-be alternative to oil remained hellishly expensive. It was even more expensive than getting a haircut in the 70s. So there was this huge international effort promoting the technology and you know, aiming to get the costs down and the durability of the technology to its maximum uh, potential. Martin and his colleagues held their own against larger, better-funded groups around the world. His PhD work, Developing New Structures, set them apart. No one else could do what this small Australian group was achieving. And more innovation was to come when Martin plonked solar technology in the middle of nowhere, outback Australia. After all, that's where the sun always was. To be fair, it's always everywhere. Hmm. Deep. The application that started taking off and, and sort of shot Australia to the forefront was in remote telecommunications. In those days, um, telephone signals and things were beamed around the country by transmitting radio waves from one sort of antenna to the next, sort of bouncing you know, about 30 kilometres apart. You'd beam the signal right across the country. The diesel-powered repeater stations needed constant maintenance and refuelling. Conversion to solar had numerous benefits. You know, you just needed to send someone out every now and then to make sure everything was ticking over and and, um, it wasn't nearly as much um, servicing and so on required. That sort of shot Australia. We were the main commercial market for solar cells and there was two companies um, manufacturing the cells in uh, in Australia by the mid-1980s. With commercial credibility and international recognition came funding, which in turn boosted research and development. Two really significant ideas that Martin and his colleagues worked on made their way through to commercial manufacturing. So one of the cells that we developed in the 1980s was called the PERC cell, P-E-R-C. And now I think it's 95% this year of all the manufacturing worldwide is manufacturing this PERC cell because it can be made very cheaply and uh, it gives you very high efficiency at the same time. So that, that's just completely taken over the whole market. See, perk here and perk there, perk everywhere. But that was an acronym that I coined in the 1980s. Perk stands for Passivated Emitter and Rear Cell. The second technology they improved was born from Martin's PhD after he found a way to increase the voltage output. Again, something from quantum mechanics, but generally it's hard to pass current through an insulator, but if you make it thin enough, quantum mechanics shows that you can, uh, it can be quite conductive. So that's what my um, PhD thesis was on, looking at the properties of these tunneling structures. But the reason people are interested in these tunneling structures that we originated is it looks like they might be able to get even higher efficiencies than with the perk. So that's keeping everyone on their toes. Please don't underestimate Professor Martin Green's contribution to photovoltaics. It's because of him we love and embrace solar innovation here in Australia. 
He has won Australian and international awards for his work in solar, including the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. Students that have worked with him often become industry leaders. One of them, Dr. Zhang Shi, set up solar cell manufacturing in China in the early 2000s and even became known as the first solar billionaire. Unlike myself, a one-in-a-billion solar user. Martin even beat Elon Musk to win the 2018 Global Energy Prize. The majority of solar panels made today use the Perk solar cell that Martin and his team invented. However, those Perk cells that took the world by storm are not manufactured here. Here's Robert from Tindo Solar again. Swipe right. At the moment... The PERC crystalline cell that we use on our modules was actually invented in Australia and nobody actually makes those cells in Australia and they're off being made in predominantly China, then coming back to this country. What we're hoping to see over the next few years is that we actually have the industry capable of developing those technologies and manufacturing them within this country rather than having to send the IP overseas. But that's not everything what is happening in the space, actually. The space is much more exciting. And in particular, the um, development of new different types of technology. This is Dorota Bacal. She works for Race for 2030. Their mission is to drive innovation for a secure, affordable, clean energy future. That's pretty cool. And what I do every day is helping our industry partners to decarbonize and to go through the energy transition. Dorota also has a PhD in renewable energy. So we do have many other technologies, not only the silicon-based solar panels that you can buy. And one of the technologies that I was working on was the perovskite solar cells, which is kind of a breakthrough of recent uh, years. Perovskite solar cells are a fast advancing technology. They're still hammering out to do in research and development, but so far they're proving incredibly efficient and cheaper and easier to make. It's actually pretty interesting that perovskite itself, the name, it's not the name of the solar solar cell. It is actually the name of the crystal structure. The atoms within the crystal are arranged in a, in a very symmetric but very specific way. Perovskite is just another type of crystal. Just like salt flakes or a diamond have a specific structure, so too does perovskite, sort of like me as well. So the perovskite crystals can contain different types of atoms and molecules, and some of them are able to generate the electricity when they are exposed to, to sunlight. Although it's commonly found, it's only a specific type of perovskite crystal that can convert light into electricity. So if I were to describe how a perovskite solar cell looks, it is a sandwich. It it basically is a sandwich. And um, in the middle of the sandwich, there is a soup that you are are creating uh, by following a recipe and later on drying. So it actually stops being a soup. But then um, it is a, this, this layer of perovskite is actually the most exciting one. It's the one that is generating the electricity. Now, don't rush out and order your perovskite sandwich just yet. As I said, there's more research and development that needs to happen. And they need a lot of tomato sauce as well. Very bitter. When we talk about the, the most, uh, I guess, common 
perovskites that we are now using for solar technology, they would contain some organic molecules and this uh, unfortunately decompose over time. But that said, there are actually companies around the world who are working very hard to commercialize this technology. Polar programs are testing the commercial viability, but there's another kind of fun reason why I want this technology to succeed. Flexibility is something that we are um, able to achieve with perovskite pretty quickly. That's because um, the perovskite solar panels, uh, solar cells, they are produced out of liquid. So if something is a liquid, we can actually use it as an ink. And this is where the printing of the solar, um, solar panels comes to play. And if you are printing something at home on paper, paper is obviously flexible and you can print solar panels on a flexible substrate, just like you do at home printing documents. Imagine printing solar panels from home or on our clothes, camping or hiking gear. Imagine windows and blinds in houses and towering skyscraper exteriors. All potential solar panels, electricity generating surfaces, Not sure about a speedo, though. Could get warm. And that's pretty cool when you think about um, the surface of all of these windows um, in the high-rise buildings in the city. All of the windows are usually a little bit dimmed in order to decrease the light that comes inside of the building. But they could be also working. Like, they could be earning money for the building or the building occupants or or the owner of of the building. I mean, that's just so much surface that's wasted and it could do something. Flexible solar panels might still be a few years off, and in the meantime, perovskite technology may be gazumped by something else. The point is, the solar industry can innovate through research and development only as long as it's supported. Professor Martin Green started on his own, but the support he found helped him change the world. Like me, with my idea of practising parkour while travelling long distances on an aircraft. Nothing really would happen in this space unless there were scientists who actually made this first move. It's really so important to support the innovation because that really gives us the future. We can't do things the same way we were doing it for the you know past few decades because that obviously is not working. I mean, it works, but it's just it's, it's pushing us off the cliff and it's really time to, um, to take this seriously. So more innovation in the space, that's, that's something that I really uh, hope for. And the support of, of investors and the support of the government for innovations, this is exactly what we need right now. And unfortunately, we need to do it very fast. I'm just looking out my window now, I can see five or six houses with solar panels of the 50 or so in my line of view. So, you know, it's um, quite rewarding to see the, that type of uptake. But I think the really big impacts are still in the future when we um, generate most of our electricity from solar, which I think we'll be doing, you know, maybe by 2030, 2040, 2030, we'll see huge amounts installed and 2040, maybe most of our electricity will be coming from uh, solar. Around 10% of Australia's electricity currently comes from solar, but like all love affairs, issues arrive from time to time. Our electrical grids have been traditionally powered by a handful of consistent coal, gas or hydropower stations, but we now have millions of distributed resources all trying to feed their excess energy into the grid. 
During the day, this means we've got a lot of excess power hitting the grid, and at night, a lot of that goes away. A bit like my hair thickness at my age. So, we've got to come up with a long-term solution to deal with these fluctuations, and a popular fix is installing a battery or hair plugs. Your batteries are preferable because they can be um, installed very quickly, like Elon Musk put in the Hornsdale battery in 100 days. So yeah, so that's going to be an important part as well. If Martin Green believes batteries are the future, then let's get on board. Next week on So What? Batteries. What are the benefits of a home battery? How do they work? And what's in it for us? Plus, how are giant Elon Musk-sized batteries helping us stabilise our energy grid? So batteries ramp up output in a fraction of a second and can detect if there's a change in frequency in sub-second timescale. So technically, batteries are just performing even better than we possibly expected. So now we know that they'll be able to provide these services moving forward as we electrify our energy system. So What is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and it's brought to you by Origin. Production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. If you're enjoying the series, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or share it with a friend. If you're keen to know more about Origin's approach to solar, check out some of the resources I've left in the episode show notes. You can also find out more about the podcast and listen to other episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what. I'm Andy Saunders, and unlike Icarus, I survived flying close to the sun. Ouch, it still burns. <laughs>